Hello and welcome to a special edition of Trash Future. It is me, Nate, today. Uh, the rest of the cast are off, but I have an opportunity to speak with Sam Asumadu from Media Diversified about a specific issue, which is the unbelievable situation created by something in the UK called Indefinite Sentences for Public Protection. And uh, Sam has done a ton of research and is campaigning on this issue. Um, something that I was completely unaware of. And, you know, when I have spoken to other British friends about this, they are also mostly unaware of this. And so, Sam, I wanted to welcome you to the show and give you an opportunity to sort of summarize at first what what the what IPPs are and uh, the kinds of situations you've encountered when researching this. So thank you for inviting me on. Uh, firstly, I think I invited myself on. I said I've, I've, I've written an article that's coming out in Open Democracy. It's an exclusive. Will you have me on to talk about it just to make sure things are on record. Um, so I should, you know, mention that and, and thank you. Um, but yes, yeah, so in, um, so, so what they are, the sentences are, um, basically, uh, they are something that came in, in 2005. Um, it was, in, yeah, 2005, uh, by the then justice, uh, secretary for state of state, uh, David Blunkett. Um, and, um, so between 2005 and 2013, they were banned in 2012. They were, they were deemed unlawful in 2012. But anyway, between, uh, th that time, 2005 and 2013, actually 8,711 people in England and Wales were given, uh, this type of sentence, uh, which is, uh, is, is the, it's a de facto life sentence basically by the back door. Um, and, um, so, so basically this sort of sentence, life sentences were reserved, uh, before 2005 for people who had committed murder. So the most serious cases of, uh, manslaughter, yeah. uh, GBH, um, and, and rape. Um, however, in 2003, uh, the, th the criminal justice act came in, uh, which introduced the indeterminate sentence for public protection. So we, following on, I'm going to call it IPP because that's a bit of a long-winded, uh, thing. Um, and so, yeah, so it's a life sentence, uh, more or less. Uh, only cut, only sort of interrupted by parole boards every now and again. You have a parole hearing, and they might let you go, but quite often they do not. But anyway, um, uh, so so in in two thousand, so when they brought it in, they actually expanded the the, the those types. So instead of just uh, murder, manslaughter, serious manslaughter, rape, and so on, they they uh, ex 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 for license they expanded the um the, what 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 you could be imprisoned for um to things like um you know burglary and uh affray um so they added sort of a, another 153 crimes that you could get this type of sentence for um and so so many of these guys had never previously had you know you couldn't get a life sentence for that obviously because you know st stealing mobile phones doesn't you know scream let's put them in prison forever but um so so um so in 2012 the IPP sentence was abolished by the government uh, but it wasn't most importantly and i hope everybody you know listens to this bit it wasn't abolished retrospectively so that means all those people who were imprisoned on an on an ipp before 2012 were 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 still imprisoned so at the time of 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 you know at this time at least 
it's uh, there's still 3,252 people who are still serving uh, prison sentences, IPP prison sentences. So, um, so can I interrupt you for a second? Just yeah, I want to give people a, a quick example of what this means. So in your reporting, you have, for example, encountered somebody who at the age of 17 was arrested for stealing a mobile phone and was, I believe, sentenced to about 15 months in prison. Yeah, but because of a tariff. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, but but because of the IPP, the the way that it worked, effectively they were for the rest of their lives could be called back to prison. They were basically on probation forever. And you found examples of people um, missing a meeting with their parole officer, then being resentenced to prison, or um, you know if they were living in in a halfway house or something like sort of post prison release housing, they uh, got in trouble for drinking alcohol, got sentenced back to prison. In one case, somebody had been attacked but had not hit some back they had been hit in a fight basically they had been they had been aggressed but they were then sent back to prison so you were in situations where people who were arrested as teenagers are in their late 30s entering their early 40s and in some cases are still in prison for a charge that i mean they're not in prison for that anymore what they're in prison for is because of how they've been treated they've become institutionalized in prison their mental health has failed you know that there's a psychosis that's happened to them that is what they're still in prison for, not for stealing mobile phones at this point, which the, the, which the government know because it, in, um, in November 2020, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, November 2021, um, I mean, they know, knew this before, but there was a justice committee. So, um, so, so that's when people go in and give testimony in, in, a, in a parliament and all these sort of things. And the subject was imprisonment for public protection IPP sentences. And there at that meeting, which was filmed, you can find it on parliament.live. Dr. Danish Maganti, who's a consultant forensic psychiatrist and clinical lead for like a secure psychiatric service um, in one of these prisons, you know, uh, his particular one was for Birmingham Solihull Health Foundation Trust. And and he told the committee, and I'll just read out a bit because I don't want to, you know, have a monologue here. But um, so he said, I've worked with IPP prisoners as patients right from the day the IPP came in as lead for one of the largest prisons in the country at, this, at that stage and continue to work with them up until yesterday, really. For me, the major lessons that we've learned, firstly, they are not a homogenous group. So we have at one end of the spectrum quite high-risk individuals who've committed very serious offences, yet at the other end of the spectrum of individuals who have not, who have come to, you know, they've come because relatively less severe, even minor um, uh, uh, things that have happened in some instances who are within the IPP group. So, so, he's, so he then goes on to talk about them separately. So his focus is on mental health aspects of IPP prisoners, as obviously as a doctor. Um, and, so, so, um, and so in context, so to carry on for what he says, he says, and in that context, there are a large group of prisoners, patients who are in the less severe offence group. We learned quite a lot from that group initially when we started out, when they started coming in 2005 and 2006. They didn't know what the centres was. And to be honest, we didn't understand it very well either. They would come in with a tariff. The tariff I've explained to you is what they're given. It's like the minimum sentence. Not that they knew that at the time because the judges weren't trained in, in, in what this sentence was. And so they, so these people with the tariff would be grouped together as lifers. So they, and he says, literally down, went down the lifer pathway. And I think, you know, that's something you could look into a bit more, like what is the life of pathway. But um, so as a consultant forensic psychiatrist for, for one of the biggest uh, prisons, he goes on to say they came in with short tariffs and would still be there after the tariff was finished in a local prison. And then they thought they were going to be released. And we presumed that they would be. So the doctors thought they would be. However, the offenders programs that they were supposed to do just didn't materialize. 
And then as we continue to work with that group, there was a distinct change in their presentation. Initially, they were young men or women in some cases, but largely young men who would come in who were not severely mentally ill. But as the years have gone by, increasingly what we are finding is they are becoming mentally ill. Their clinical presentation is increasingly akin to those who've been wrongfully convicted. They present with anxiety, they present with depression, a great deal of mistrust of the criminal justice system. What has been happening is then there was initially a, a rebellion against that. Um, they, they figured we're supposed to get out. So you end up in a situation where that risk, that behavioural disturbance was used as a risk ind- indicator not to release them, not the original offence or their criminal history outside the prison, but their behaviour in prison. And so their mental health needs, as it were, their anxiety, depression, and eventually psychosis in some cases were used as a risk indicator. And when that occurred, it led to a system of them being perpetually in prison. And that led to a sense of helplessness. And quite a lot of them have become institutionalized. It's difficult for them to to move forward. And that's a doctor who's worked from 2005. So what is that? 17 years now. Um, That's what he's saying in Parliament. You know, and, and, and it's sad because, I mean, he doesn't specifically say it, but a lot of these people have killed themselves in prison yeah. because of that. And, and I noticed you, in your reporting, you mentioned that the people that suicidal ideation and, and, and suicide is, is quite common. And it's one of those things where, where people express surprise at this or it's sort of like, well, mm. you know, how, how are these people, you know, still in prison? And it's like, well, mm. as you pointed out, you know, their mental health breaks down when they've been basically on, on, on a completely over over-exaggerated sentence, you know, they have become affected by the sentence and yeah. that's changed their behavior and demeanor. And then that, that provides a pretext for them to say, oh, these yeah. people are, are at risk. Nasty little circle. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm reminded, I know this in, in the, the letter that was that you were circulating, um, you know, trying to urge the government to act, there was a reference to the Khalif Browder story. And that was the first thing that this reminded me of. Mm. In, it, I was living in New York when that happened. It, you know, a kid was arrested on suspicion of of having stolen a backpack from a from a store, mm-hmm. um, there was no real evidence to it. But he was just a black teenager that the cops thought was disposable. And by the time that his his he, his family didn't have money to make bail, and on a long enough timeline of being held at Rikers Island for I think like three years, awaiting just just a, 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 a an arraignment, um, he you know kept being put in solitary confinement, mm-hmm. and eventually was released after a significant amount of activism and wound up committing suicide. Um, you know, at home after having been released. And Gosh. it's one of these reminders where it's like, this, th- there was no evidence that he had committed any crime at all. Mm. Um, the, 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 the impediment was basically his family couldn't afford the bond that the state had said, you have to pay to get him out. And he, you know, lived as a, as a teenager, as I think he was 16 when he was arrested in horrific conditions at Rikers Island mm. and, you know, awaiting, not even awaiting, not, not in prison, not sentenced, awaiting basically arraignment. Every yeah. time that, he, that the public defender and him would show up, they would then delay the case because like the, the prosecution was like, oh, yeah, we, we don't have this ready. And the judge would grant a deferral. And it's like on a long enough timeline, this is this is just destructive to someone's. Uh, yeah. psyche. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and that's that was the first thing I thought of that like, okay, someone commits a crime like when they're a teenager, you know, a minor crime, like you said, a minor theft, like a nonviolent theft, um, like people getting in a scuffle, things along those lines. But then the system basically grants itself the authority to continue imprisoning someone for in this in, in some of these cases, 17 years. Yeah, yeah. The longest people have been there 17 years from when they you know, they first went in, they, they went gung-ho with um, imprisoning, imprisoning these black 
brown and white working class men and women. And I, I mean, I'd be remiss in saying of, of, of not highlighting one case of, of a woman called Charlotte Noakes. And so um, the reason I know about Charlotte Noakes is because of her inquest, because she died uh, in 2016. Um, she, she was serving an indefinite imprisonment for pilot protection. Um, and she was basically over seven years over her minimum, minimum tariff when she died. So she was only supposed to be, like, be in, I think, of like 15 months. But, you know, she was in seven years past that. And um, so in the inquest into the death of Charlotte, they concluded that the jury concluded that they found her death was by natural causes. I mean, Charlotte was 38 when she was found dead in her cell in HMP Peterborough. So natural causes sounds a little bit ridiculous to me. What was, what was she charged one. with? What was, what was the original tariff for? You know, do you know what? I don't know and I don't care. And I've told this to people publicly. It does not matter what crime they did. For one, it definitely wasn't murder or sure, any of yeah. these things. So it, it doesn't matter to me. But I just, I'm taken aback. The reason I ask is because I'm taken aback by like the idea that being sentenced to over a year in prison as a teenager for, you know, one of the examples you brought up, stealing a mobile phone. Like, yeah, that seems, that seems so. They're in there for stealing mobile phones. And it just seems so incredibly draconian for such a minor crime. And then this, this system allows it to become effectively a life sentence. I mean, that's, it's just bananas to me. Like, I, I, I'm. Yeah, it's shocking. It's shocking. I mean, she, she, if, I mean, if she had been released seven years earlier, I think she, for one, wouldn't be dead. But what happened is, um, so she is one of four women who've died uh, serving an IPP sentence, um, which, is, which is really concerning. There's been lots more men. Um, but, but the thing with Charlotte is she, you know, she, she was, uh, okay, so, yeah, let's, I mean, I think it's important to humanise these people because that is what they have, they've been dehumanised by the state. But she was known to her family as Charlie or Lottie and um you know she was funny she was creative very creative actually um she started doing a lot of art in uh, in prison and she was you know she had her work her work that she did in prison exhibited by the uh, Costler Trust she'd also um you know she 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 just she'd got a scholarship to study at Central St Martins upon her release yeah so she's just looking to get out and be you know Central St Martins is a really highly respected like art school and she had a a, a place there um but so she was given the census in 2008, and then um, she was supposed to serve a minimum of 15 months, um, but she'd served, by the time she was died, found dead in her, in her cell, it, she'd been in there eight and a half years. And then, so, I mean, the jury, the, sorry, the, the inquest um, said, you know, they, they talked to the family, and the family said that she's described her sentence to her family as a death sentence, Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, she was, she was um, like, you know, the, the justifications of people at these inquests, they're saying that Charlotte wasn't ready to engage with her therapeutic needs and so on. Did she have therapeutic needs when she was, you know, when she was first um, Yeah, when she was imprisoned? brought in. Yeah, you wonder. And so then they're saying that she was diagnosed with a personality disorder and so on. And so they gave her antipsychotic drugs to treat her symptoms. So, but however, which is, I, I, I'm trying to look into this further. So in the months leading up to her death, she often, you know, she appeared sedated, drowsy and slurring her speech. And then they found that they, would, they were administrating, administering the medication she was on for unusually long periods. So, so, so I mean, it's, like, I've just heard so many horrendous stories, and that's just one of them. I'm, I'm really taken aback by this. Um, I, I, I wanted to, to point out, because there's a similar situation with, uh, I, I followed this, this story with regard to no recourse to public funds 
and the way that asylum seekers are treated in this country. And I'm linking these two together because these are both policies that came in under New Labor, mm. uh, under Tony Blair, that then in the aftermath of them being applied and to the cruelest extent possible, people then, even the people involved, in this case, David Blunkett, but other people who were involved with, with asylum seekers said the same thing. Like, oh, we never intended it to be this harsh. This is a miscarriage of justice. This is counterproductive. And yet it keeps happening. And and, and like you said, in well, the case the of IPPs. are in trouble now. They, I mean, it's in there and they've got, they're just going with it because that's what's Labour bought in. But the thing is, remember, if you go back to that time, 2005, so on, you know, uh, Tony Blair's government, there was a really horrendous atmosphere for young people, for young working class people. There was yeah. the, the ASBOs and so, that sort of thing. Yeah, the, the anti-congregation like sound the, thing. You know, the, those are like, the mosquitoes or like the, the, the lights that are supposed to highlight the blemishes on, on teenagers' faces. Like all of that stuff is, 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 I mean, in the case of, in the case of refugees, basically they, the, they, they later tried to, you know, um, they tried to apologize and say, oh, we never intended uh, for the ban on working for asylum seekers to last any longer than six months. And for people who aren't aware of the situation in the UK, if you're an asylum seeker, while your case is being decided, and this can take years, uh, I believe it's you're, you're allotted £39 per week to, uh, per person, but you're not allowed to work, um, which means you know you have to live in whatever housing they put you in, which is typically very, very squalid. Um, you, you are allowed zero independence. And they, they, they then turn around and say, oh, well, you know, you're, we, we, never, we never expected this to... Uh, to last this long, but you know now the government has the power to be this as cruel as possible, and they they're using it. And and, and I think that the one thing I would say before before I head back over is the extent to which you know they've even determined they've they've now since banned IPPs, but refused to apply that retroactively to, yeah, yeah, to the people exactly. who 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 are, who are still serving convictions for for something. And in most of these cases, it's it's just. I, like okay, in the U.S., you have you, you may have heard of, of of three strikes laws. I think this was pioneered in California, yeah, but became really yeah, yeah. popular. You also have things like mandatory minimum sentences, which yes, specifically were applied for for drug convictions, but other for other things too. So mandatory minimums take discretion out of judges' hands. If someone's convicted of a crime, they, they, a judge cannot sentence them to less than a certain amount. So you'll have situations in which somebody on like a first time offense, a young person with you know a very small amount of drugs, uh, you know, or just over a certain threshold, could you know be automatically sentenced to 10 years in prison, 20 years in prison, you know, when they're 18. Um, and it's a first time offense. And, and, and go ahead. Sorry. That happens, isn't it? Because, you know, that this is a class thing as well, because, um, you know, a, a, a rich liberals uh, son or daughter is going to have some proper representation. Absolutely. Whereas working yeah, class, yeah. Black, brown or white young person isn't going to have that representation. Absolutely. No, that's not, 100% knocking, true. Knocking um, people who do, what what you have public, pros- no, not public, uh, defenders. Public not defenders. Not knocking yeah. them at all, but I'm assuming Most they have lots of cases. Most public defenders have less than 10 minutes to review the case before they yeah. have to present it. Like they're right. unbelievably overworked and yeah. and treated with incredible contempt. And and I'll give you an example. A friend of mine in high school, uh, he's a bit younger than me. So this, I would have been in university when he was uh, when he was in, in high school, he, or he had just graduated from high school. He had just turned 18. Um, in our hometown, he was hanging out with some friends from school who were, you know, they were all 17. He had just turned 18. They were classmates, but they were just younger than him or they were a year behind him in school. Uh, they were, there was a neighborhood pool, uh, but it was closed. And so they had climbed the fence and they were hanging out in the pool despite it being closed. And they had alcohol and marijuana. I mean, it's not really a huge problem. It's just teenagers doing teenager things. Someone called the cops. So the cops came, they ran, they hid in someone's uh, garage, but some, one of them got like one of the, the, the younger kids got, got. Uh, conscientious about it and basically turned them in. 
uh, basically was like called the cops oh, because they're like, oh, we did something wrong. We have to we have to own up to it. So my friend, because he was 18, he the, the cops basically decided to charge him with all the things they would have charged all the other kids with. So he got furnishing alcohol to a minor possession of cannabis, um, you know, breaking and entering all these charges. And he was 18 years old. He was 18 and like two weeks old, um, was facing um, multiple felonies because of these and was staring at a first for a first time offense, five years in prison. And he was able to enter into conditional discharge program because his parents were able to get a lawyer and he was able to argue it down basically to a misdemeanor. He was able to have it um, expunged from his record. But for his first uh, two years of university, for example, he uh, had to, I believe he had, he didn't have to wear an ankle monitor, but he had to go to um, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and oh was basically meeting with a, meeting with a, um, a parole officer, I think monthly. And he even told me, you know, as an 18 year old, he was just like, this is, it's just pay to play. Like if I didn't have money, if my parents didn't have any money, then I would be in prison and I'd be a felon. And because they had enough money to hire a lawyer, like I can make this go away. And he's like, it's just, it's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. And you look at that in the United States and you see that same mentality. I I briefly mentioned three strikes laws. Uh, Typically the way those would work is that if someone had been convicted of any violent offense, if they had two more charges, no matter how minor, uh, they would be sentenced to life in prison. So a famous example in California was a guy who had like a, he had like an assault and battery charge um, when he was very young. And then later in life, after being released from prison, had gotten in trouble for um, a, like two minor theft charges, one of which was stealing a slice of pizza and oh got gosh. sentenced to life in prison. Oh, gosh. oh and, my God. And that, 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 that punitive carceral mentality, mm. you know, was massive in the united states and still is but was even more so in the 90s mm-hmm. and it seems like in britain well, it was in the prison, 2000s most people are percentage-wise in the world doesn't yeah, absolutely. America yeah, we, yeah we have yeah the, the, i believe we may have the most people both percentage-wise and also just by numbers in yeah. prison and and that mentality it feels to me like that mentality of finding as many you know sort of roundabout ways to discipline and punish for lack of a better expression uh that was really the kind of zeitgeist in britain in the early 2000s and seeing this kind of thing like we were just describing with ipps like the idea that you know that even this far down the road you can look at the consequences of this and and not acknowledge that a wrong has been committed that like regardless of what people did like the idea that 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 minor crimes that previously probably wouldn't even have gotten a custodial sentence are resulting in people getting effectively life sentences. 17 years, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is incredible. And 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 I, I hadn't heard of it until, up until about a month ago. And, and since then, I've, you know, I've heard horror story after horror story. You know, these prisoners are, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're uh, self-harming. Uh, yeah. they're, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, gouging their, their arms. They're, they're, so much stuff has, has happened to these prisoners. And maybe we'll go into it, but I guess you'll have to give your uh, listeners a, a bit of a warning on that. And, and I, would, I would, I would just throw this in that, like that, then I'm a presume becomes justification for them to say, "Oh, this person can't be released because they're oh, yeah, self-harming." Exactly, exactly. That's what what I with that quote from the doctor who 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 uh, who who um uh, yeah, the doctor quote that I said earlier. That's exactly what's happening. This is because they are then self-harming. That means they can't go out because they're a danger to you know. It's it's a horrible, horrible cycle. But you know, I mean, I must. I, I again, I'd be remiss if I didn't say. We started this podcast late because I was dealing with the Ministry of Justice, who I'm trying yeah. to get uh, to, to, to go on record um, with, with with their comments on some of the questions I've asked, and and, uh, and and even now I've had another email from them while you've while we've been talking, which I'll have to open once we finished and, and, and deal with them again because you know it's just 
obfuscation and delay with them, but they have got till 5 p.m. to, to answer my questions. L- but, um, let me ask you, what was it that you wanted to ask them? Like, what were the questions? Because I feel like that's important to put out there. Uh, so yeah, I'll go through them. I, I've, I think I've given them uh, six questions um, and I'll read them out. So the first one, the IPP was deemed unlawful in 2012. Why haven't you released prisoners with that sentence who were in prison before that date? So retrospectively left, uh, um, let them out. Um, so many prisoners have now done between 11 to 17 year sentences with no end in sight. So that's question one. Question two was, why aren't people prescribed with methadone allowed into an open prison? And that was related to Leroy Douglas. He's someone who went in uh, for a mobile phone uh, stealing with no violence, and he's there still 17 years. He's been moved from prison to prison. Uh, the contact that I have with him is through another woman, a campaigner, and she, you know, she's been fighting his case for a long time. And she's found over those 17 years, he's been moved so many times. Well, she, I think she's been around for about 12 years trying to help him. Uh, he's been moved to prison to prison so many times and she finds it hard to keep track of him. Um, So, so, so the, so that was one and, and, oh, sorry. And so he is on methadone for pain and they're saying that he can't release because of that. So Leroy Douglas, question three, Leroy Douglas should have been transferred to a D category open prison in June last year. Um, And also Leroy's teenage daughter died last year. And he was not allowed to go to her funeral. He was told by prison officers that he had been in prison so long that he could not have bonded with his daughter. Um, And Leroy has been moved around the prison estate almost every year since he's been inside. He had a two and a half year tariff for stealing a mobile phone without prison, without violence, and has been inside prison for 70 years. And I asked him, why has he not been released? And I bolded that question. Question number four I asked is why doesn't the prison service inform families or friends that they are being transferred to another prison? And that was based on uh, some, some, some correspondence I've had with a, 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 a woman. Well, a t- a t- she might even be a teenager. I'm not sure of her age. Safira, who is, whose uncle is in prison and has been for about 17 years based on one of these that he's been in prison since he was 25. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll go into his case a bit more, but she, she, at the time we were corresponding, actually it was yesterday, uh, I should say, uh, was saying that she doesn't know her, where her uncle is because he's been moved. Um, thankfully a couple of hours later, she did find out from, from the other campaigner I mentioned, Shirley, Shirley Lloyd, who's done so much great work on this, but, but she, you know, she's, he, he, for however many years has been moved from prison to prison, made lots of complaints and you hasn't been, it hasn't been dealt with. And I, I will go into his case a bit more, but the fifth question I asked was, uh, Garth O'Hagan was released to a hostel after doing 11 years of a 17 month tariff. Yeah. He was 17 year olds when he, when he was sentenced, he was released to a hostel, spent two years there before the contract expired. He was recalled, but then the probation service found another hostel for him so he could stay out. But there he was savagely attacked by another person and didn't feel safe. So he told the probation service, can they move him or or put him back in prison? (laughs) And so the probation service told him to breach his license conditions so that they could recall him. And I've asked them, is the question in bold, is this normal practice? And so he stayed at a friend's house that night and handed himself into probation the next morning. Um, and all of this just to keep himself safe. Yeah. And the last question I asked was about Mohammed Nazir Khan, which I mentioned before. So um, he has been in HM Long Larton prison on an IPP sentence. Um, and his uh, niece, Zafira Zalfika, isn't sure which prison he's in. And he's, he's been moved recently. He was sentenced in 2005 at 25 years old. 
The initial sentence was 21 months long, yet it has been 16 years. He's served 14 years over time. So, you know, he's been out for a little bit, as recall. Yeah. So Sophia wrote to me that he had been to Birmingham and came back to Wakefield drunk. His step-cousins, two men, attacked him outside his home. And in the fight, one of them had been wounded by a knife. The wound was only one centimetre in depth and three centimetres in width. The jury found him guilty of the charge, uh, Section 18, wounding with intent. Um, As far as his family is concerned, his crime was self-defence. Remember, they attacked him outside his house, yeah? So Sophia's email said that he's been assaulted by officers in prison. He's tried multiple times to file complaints and charges, but they've gone nowhere. Uh, During COVID, he and other prisoners have been in lockdown for around 23 hours a day. So Sophia contacted her local uh, MP, Imran Ahmed Khan of the Wakefield constituency. But however, he's a conservative MP. He's been suspended due to, due to his own court case. And so the issue, he was at the time taking it on to Minister Lucy Fraser, who's now, you know, she's gone. She's not the prison's officer. So, 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 so Safira has been thwarted at every point, at every every. And it seems like government yeah. churn basically means yeah. that then yeah. the one point of contact changes and they start the whole process over again. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, so apparently they, they basically, everybody's been really extremely unhelpful and they've said that he's not completed his courses when he, what he, you know, the courses that they make them do when in actuality he has completed many courses, but the prison he's in hasn't been offering all the courses that he needs to do to get out. So, so I asked them, what is the ministry's position on this? And do I need to file a FOIA, a Freedom of Information Act uh, question to find out what his complaints have been? Because if so, I will contact Mark Watts at the Freedom of Information Centre. And so that's the email I sent to them. Over the, last night, they were emailing me back but I, I, uh, last night, but I was not in. So I've been dealing with it this morning. But, um, but, but, but you know, I mean, there's more. And I've sent them. So, so they then asked me which probation service was Garth in, the one I mentioned. And so I have sent them this back. Once Garth handed himself into probation, he was recalled to prison and sent around, spent around a year inside. He was directed for a release to a hostel and eventually found his own accommodation with the help of the probation service and the council. Early last year, Garth went for a drink with a friend. A fight broke out amongst a group of people that Garth had no connections with. One of this group punched Garth. Garth did not retaliate, but the man punched Garth again and Garth had to defend himself. Three of the group were arrested and so was Garth. All were bailed until police carried out further investigation. However, because Garth is an IPP prisoner, he was recalled to prison. In December, the police completed their inquiry and exonerated Garth from the investigation as he was found innocent. However, as he is an IPP, he has to wait for parole in prison. So Garth had a parole in January, but it was postponed because it was found out that there were adjudications on his file that belonged to another prisoner. And so it was also adjourned because his probation did not have a release plan for him, uh, which is the requirement for parole, for, for IPP parole hearings. And so Garth is still inside waiting indefinitely for a parole hearing for something he's been, he's been found he's been innocent of. of. And it's like, why would you need a release plan yeah. for somebody when they, it's, they yeah. were arrested in error? Absolutely horrendous. I mean, Nate, I'm, I, I, it, it goes deeper and darker every time I read stuff. The, you know, the Home Office are involved as well because they deport some of these prisoners as well. Yeah. Of course. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. 
so I've given them till five o'clock today. I don't know what they've sent another email again, just a delay, delaying email. And I'm and and, and I've asked them. So, so is this your comment? Then is that what you want me to publish? And I guess that's what he's replying to, which I'm ignoring until we finish the talking. But yeah. So so what I want to as, as a way of wrapping up then what I wanted to ask you was I know that that you have a piece coming out in Open Democracy and and when that's released I'll I'll, I'll, I'll time this so that it's released you know with a link to that. But for people who want to get involved or at least, you know, sign on to petitions to things along those lines or any kind of activism, like, are there resources or things they should know about? Oh, absolutely. So, so uh, on social media, there's a hashtag called justice for IPPs. So, uh, we're justice for FOR IPPs. That's on the end there. And you can, if you click on that, hashtag you can find links to the petitions you can find stories of people and so on uh, it's the same on instagram actually if you go to instagram uh, writers of color or called media diversified as well but the the, the the url is writers of color uh, and you go to our link tree there's all the linked petitions and resources to read up and stuff about it obviously we so so uh shirley um Sh- shirley lloyd has uh put wrote that joint statement that's coming out probably um, probably tomorrow. I'm hoping tomorrow because I, I can't deal with the MOJ much longer. Um, but um, in, 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 in that, uh, she's written a lot about what's, what IPPs are and she's addressed it to uh, Donna Rabb, who is the, um, who is the uh, Justice Secretary at the moment. And she's collected 50 signatures of, uh, of um, you know, people of, people of note, uh, civil society people, uh, which includes sort of uh, Michael Mansfield's QC, um, uh, Chris Dorse, QC, also myself. And then we've got a lot of journalists who've signed it as well. Catelyn Moran from The Times, um, uh, Laurie Penny, who the writer, screenwriter and, 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 and author, Sarah O'Connell, another journalist, um, also Susan Moore at The Daily Telegraph. And then um, Owen Jones, actually, the author for, uh, and uh, journalist from The Guardian. And then more people, even Peter Thatchell signed it. You know, some, some really like uh, uh, um, uh, uh, notable people. Halima Begum of the chief executive officer of the of Runnymede. Also, the, you know, the, the director of the Center for Crime and Justice Studies. All of these people are coming together, so putting their necks on the line because a lot of people don't want to be connected to IPPs. Everybody's washing their hands off of it. But these 50 people, including yourself, actually, <laughs> yeah, Nate. That is true. I'm on there. I think, what number are you on this? You're number 47 on the list. Nate Bethia, writer and producer, Trust Future Podcast, have signed this. You know, um, the editor of The uh, Canary has signed it. There's lots of great people who've done it. Madney Eunice, who used to run the British Theatre and is now on in New York, he's like a British guy who, who's in America concerned about this. Amrit Singh Path from the Sikh Council. And so that is going to be, um, it would be published tomorrow. It should be. I'm hoping there's not much more delay. And uh, the letter will be published. It, you know, um, Donovan Rob, it's, be, it's been sent to him already, or it's been sent to the Ministry of Justice Press Department. Really, So they're very aware of who, who, who signed it and what's in the letter. Um, you know, there's a chartered psychologist and academic in there and so on. And so, um, so, and Lee Jasper too. So, so, um, actually, I should also say Sam Grant, head of policy and campaigns and liberty. So, this is every, these are people, notable people putting their neck on the line to say, stop this sentence. This is ridiculous. You need to retrospectively let these people out and you need to give them the resources they need because they have been institutionalized yeah. at this point. They have mental health problems. They, that, you know, it, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be safe for them to be in the community in some ways because they don't have the resources they need and they need to get back into work. And you, how did you do it? You went in as a teenager. You've yeah. missed your, most of your adult life now and then you've got to uh, reintegrate yourself into society. So, 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 yes, please sign the petition. I mean, we only have a month 
left of it because it closed. It's been up for like five months. I got involved about a month ago and it's been so slow watching those, um, those uh, signatures come in where I got involved in the National Anti and Borders Bill when it was at 2000 and we promoted it, promoted it. It went over 300,000 in a matter of weeks. Yeah, this has been going on for ages and we're at 1000 and something. It's so, it's so incredibly heartbreaking that people aren't there for the black, white and brown working classes. And you know what? In my research, I found that it's a lot of it is white working class people, uh, uh, teenagers who, who are imprisoned by the Labour government and who the Tories have not have, have, have kept it going because bureaucracy, I don't know why else, because anybody can read these stories and be able to see how unjust they are. So it is pure bureaucracy. And also maybe there's money involved in there. That's what I'm hearing as well, but I can't put that on the record. Sure. Yet. Yeah. So I'm just, uh, well, I mean, some, that what out. I would say too, is it just gets mm-hmm. me is that I think about, you know, I, I had a, a, a stupid encounter with police where I wound up getting charged for something and had to do a conditional discharge thing when I was 20 years old. And it was really dumb. And mm-hmm. it was just me being, you know, being a, a, a moron. And, you know, I, 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 I regret it, but it was the, the, basically the, the only, the only people who were harmed in it were the cops. I basically wasted the cops time. And so they charged me with false informing. And I think about that that like had they had I not had the resources you know that would have drastically uh, affected my life had I not just had you know six hundred dollars to pay for entry into the conditional discharge program um, if I didn't have you know the resources to know that I needed to get my record expunged as soon as it was it was possible to do so you know things along those lines and I think about like if I was British you know if I was if, I mean I'm, I'm a British citizen but if I'd grown up here um, I you know, have I gotten wrapped up in something, you know, with the law because it's just something dumb that, you know, people do when they're young, you know, it's something they'd regret. And that's something that has, you know, you could make amends for, you know, it's entirely possible. These people are my age. I mean, these people in their late thirties, that's, that's how old I am. Like, and I think about where yeah. I was in 2005 yeah. when I got arrested, like, quite frankly, uh, you know, so much as I just, the, the concept of being institutionalized from then, like, how would you relate to the adult world? How would you relate to the rest of your life? If all that time you'd been either imprisoned or under threat of imprisonment. Well, I mean, Shirley, 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 the campaigner, her son was, um, imprisoned, um, on a two and a half year tariff and he did eight, over eight years. And she says he's not the same, like she said, no IPP prisoner when they come out are the same as when they yeah. went in that they, they, they are damaged by this by this sentence and I'm just going to say you know in 2020 there was self-harm within the pop, IPP population there was 2066 self-harm incidents there were two suicides didn't you say there's only yeah. like there's around 3,800 um, people that are affected by this yeah 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 at the moment still on that sentence but the fact is you know they they are killing themselves in 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 disproportionate amounts compared to other prisoners who aren't under an IPP I mean, so sentence. you're saying that it sounds like, like just ballpark math here, it sounds like that's around 60, 65% of people who are serving IPPs have self-harmed. Or there's, I mean, yeah. there may be, re- there may be, re- yeah, there maths, may be repeat like, in, individuals who've committed more, more than one attempt at self-harm, yeah. but that's, that's incredible. I mean, some people, when you say that, some of them are on recourse, so some of them go out, but that means that you can't, you, you, you're, you're living a shadow life because there's, you're scared at the time that you're going to be recalled well, yeah, and, at and, any and moment. Any, any encounter yeah? with the state means you could potentially be recalled, yeah. But even not the state, you could have a, a, a neighbor who just doesn't like you and they will report you and you'll be put in prison, yeah? And this has literally happened. I mean, there's one case, I'm not sh- I can't remember if I put it in the article or not. There was just too much. My article was like going over 4,000. It was just getting ridiculous. But he, um, one of the things he 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 he'd gone out in recall. He had an argument with his girlfriend, and then um and then um the neighbours called him, called him, and he was recalled back to prison. Two weeks le- later, he he hung himself. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. That's. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, thank you so much for making time for this. I'm really glad we can put this out on our network and get people more aware of this because this is this is just unbelievable. Like. 
I think the extent to which these things in the UK seem to they take place and then are never reported on again in major major mm. newspapers. It's it's really mind blowing, and, and I really appreciate the fact that you've you know invested so much of your own time into investigating this. And I just hope that hopefully our you know our listeners uh, taking a break from the, the the comedy aspect of the show will listen to this and that and potentially if they can get involved or at least show support for remedying this because this is I mean the more I learn about this the more the more unbelievable yeah. it seems. Yeah. In fact, there's just one last thing I wanted to say. This is, um, so there's an, uh, there's an IPP prisoner who I tweet with uh, just last few weeks. And, you know, he sent me, he, 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 he told me this. I'm going to read it out. He said, sadly, another one, which is another IPP prisoner, went on, on the run this weekend. They had told him that he was not going to be recalled. Then they sent three carloads of, um, of, of, of people to fetch him. And so, they are, and he says, we, this is a quote from him, we are constantly looking over our shoulder. The stress out here is no better because freedom is not the definition that goes with IPP. And that's a, IPP, a guy on Twitter who's called John Wright who just tweets with me occasionally because uh, he knows that I'm trying to ch- try and do something about it. I well, I really hope that this at least gets enough attention on it that this can start the momentum required. Um, and I really, really appreciate you making time for this, Sam. And I will link to Media Diversified, uh, to your link tree and to your article in the show notes for this. So for those of you listening, look for that um, at the bottom of this and uh, get involved if you can. Thank you so much. Thanks, mate.